On this episode of A New York Minute in History. Uh, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, uh, why was the Amistad Rebellion successful when all of these other ones failed? In honor of Black History Month, we dive into the story of the Amistad Rebellion, when a group of illegally captured Africans successfully took over a Spanish slave ship and found themselves off the coast of Long Island on their quest for freedom. It's all up next, right after this. From the Irish invasion of Canada to the early days of the movies, if you are interested in broadening your understanding of New York State history, then this is the podcast for you. I'm Susan Hughes, historian and archivist for the William G. Pomeroy Foundation, a proud sponsor of a New York Minute in History. The Pomeroy Foundation is a philanthropic organization based in Syracuse, New York. One of our main initiatives is to help people celebrate their community's history by providing grants for historic markers and plaques. Here in the Empire State and across the country, we support a diverse range of marker programs that include commemorating food history, civil rights, folklore, and sites on the National Register of Historic Places. As the nation's leading funder of historic markers, the Pomeroy Foundation has awarded over 1,800 grants since 2005. To learn more about the Foundation's grant programs, visit wgpfoundation.org. That's wgpfoundation.org. Welcome to a New York Minute in History. I'm Devin Lander, the New York State historian. And I'm Lauren Roberts, the historian for Saratoga County. In honor of Black History Month, on this episode, we are heading out to Long Island. The marker of focus is located very close to the shore near 185 Soundview Drive in Montauk. The title is Schooner Amistad, and the text reads... In 1839, illegally enslaved Africans subdued captors on ship, came ashore nearby, then jailed in Connecticut, finally freed by U.S. Supreme Court in 1841. William G. Pomeroy Foundation, 2022. The story of the Amistad may be familiar to many of our listeners because in the late 1990s, Steven Spielberg produced a major motion picture which followed this story. And the story is of a ship that was carrying illegally enslaved Africans heading to a plantation in Cuba. These Africans rose up and revolted successfully against their white captors and attempted to sail the ship back to Africa. The Amistad case is interesting in a lot of ways. You have to realize that in 1839 and, and that era in which they were stolen from their homes in Sierra Leone, which was a British territory, uh, the slave trade had been made illegal by the British, but there were still slavers bringing enslaved Africans across the Middle Passage to the United States to the colonies in the Caribbean. So that was very much still happening. In the case of the Amistad, which itself was not a slave ship, it was a schooner, it was transporting 49 enslaved men and four children from one part of Cuba to the other. These men and these children had been purchased by two plantation owners. So in Spain and, and Spanish colonies at this time, slavery was still legal. So again, you have this complexity of violating British rules and laws as far as the slave trade from their territories is concerned. We have the same complexity in the United States at this time. In southern states, slavery is very legal. In many northern states, but not all. 
it's illegal. So this is a very complex case. The idea that this was a successful revolt at sea is something that uh, we spoke to Dr. Marcus Redeker about. My name is Marcus Redeker. I am a distinguished professor of Atlantic history at the University of Pittsburgh. I have written a number of books, all of which have something very important in common. They are all what we call history from below, the history of ordinary people uh, making history. As I was writing an, a previous book called The Slave Ship, A Human History, seeing one revolt after another fail, uh, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, why was the Amistad Rebellion successful? What I wanted to know is who were these people who made it? How did they actually do it? The main finding on this, this set of questions was that these people were from Southern Sierra Leone, all 53 of them. They were from about nine or 10 different ethnic groups, but they came from a region in which the wars of the slave trade were raging. And what this meant was that the men of every village had to be trained warriors. So what I learned was that the, the ways of warfare in Southern Sierra Leone were the key to the successful uprising. So in my view, uh, the most important thing about the Amistad Rebellion uh, has its origins in West Africa. Steven Spielberg's film begins with Sinke trying mm -hmm. to get a nail out of a piece of wood, which he can then use to pick the lock. There are actually sources that say that they broke the padlock, not picked it, that they broke it. And it was crucial for me to figure out that there were, there was not one, but two blacksmiths on board. Mm -hmm. And metallurgy in this part of West Africa was quite advanced in this period. So I'm, I'm quite confident that these people knew the properties of this metal and they knew how to break it. One of uh, the principles, I might say, of the kind of history I do is that we treat ordinary working people as thinkers. So one of the things that I'm trying to figure out is what kinds of things will the Amistad Africans have known that would have helped them to conceive, to plan, to coordinate, and to execute this uprising on board the ship. I found that one of the keys was all of the nine or 10 uh, ethnic groups came from uh, areas of Southern Sierra Leone where a key institution of what is called the Poro Society, all male secret society that is involved in the governance of the village. But one of the things that's really important about the Poro Society is that it makes the decision about when to go to war. And it turns out I found a document, a really remarkable document, some years after the Amistad Rebellion, when after people had gone back to Sierra Leone, one of the Amistad Africans described the process of making that decision. And he said there was a big debate. And some people led by Sinke, who by the way had quite serious military experience, he was on the side of the uprising, but other people were reluctant. And so basically this person said that uh, a speech that Sinke made convinced people and they decided by consensus that they were gonna try to rise up and capture the ship. Now, something else happened uh, that made them believe that this was possible. You know, there were uh, four children on the Amistad. The three little girls uh, and the little boy, they were not in chains. And so they had the freedom to sort of move about the ship. And the little girls 
discovered a box that had cane knives in it. Well, it turns out that the Mende warrior fought with a cutlass or a, a long knife of this kind. So imagine yourself as a Mende warrior when you find out there, there are all these uh, weapons that you can use that you're familiar with. This is like a sign from the gods that you are meant to rise up. So, so again, there's a military knowledge and skill that's involved in all this. Okay, so when they did finally break onto the main deck of the Amistad, the crew are starting to fight back, but two sailors who were supposed to defend the ship in this situation saw that they weren't gonna win, and they threw a canoe overboard and jumped overboard to follow it. Uh, and in a matter of five minutes, the Amistad Africans had captured the ship. So they took uh, the two enslavers on board, uh, Ruiz and Montez, and made them their captives and told them to sail the ship in the direction of the rising sun, sending it eastward back towards Sierra Leone. But uh, Montez, who had been a ship captain, was very clever and he didn't do that. He uh, pretended to sail in that direction during the day, but at night he sailed back toward the coast in the hope that they would be captured. With the help of the Gulf, the Gulf Stream going up the Eastern American coast, uh, they go past Fire Island uh, and they go up to the northern end of Long Island, a place called Culloden's Point, and they decide to go ashore and they see a group of white hunters. Now, one of the members of the Amistad group could speak a little bit of English. His name was Berna. Then they went ashore carrying their, their muskets. They, they put their guns down. They raised their hands. They said, we mean you no harm. There's one fascinating thing that this man Berna said. When he saw these hunters, he asked them, is this slavery country? Now, to me, that's a fascinating point because it implies the knowledge that some areas were slavery country and other areas were not. And as it happened, New York State had abolished slavery in 1827. And so the men said, no, it's not slavery country. And then the Amistad Africans began to rejoice and dance. And But so great was their joy at having reached a place that wasn't slavery country. That this is a crucial part of the story. It turns out that uh, Montez, the enslaver, had planned to take them ashore in Charleston. What do you think would have been the outcome there? So the fact that they did make it that far north is actually a, a crucial part of their eventual success. But before they can communicate very much with these white hunters, coming into view in the background is the U.S. brig Washington of the U.S. Navy. And the, the Amistad men see this and they go rushing back to shore, but they're too late. And so they're captured by the U.S. Navy. Their vessel is towed across to New London, Connecticut, where they're put in jail and thus begins the sort of landed part of the story. You mentioned the complexity of the different countries having some places that had banned the slave trade and some that had not. Another complexity is salvage rights. We're dealing with a schooner that has been taken over. So when the brig Washington gets 
on board, they have a decision to make once they discover that it is a number of illegally kidnapped Africans. Of course, they don't know that. They believe that they are enslaved Africans, which means that they would be treated as cargo. And so along with the boxes of saddles and cloth and other things, enslaved Africans are considered to have a monetary value as part of that cargo. So the captain of the brig Washington decides that he would probably have a better chance bringing that ship into Connecticut to claim salvage rights because Connecticut did not fully abolish slavery until 1848. So the ship gets brought into Connecticut and that's where the Africans are imprisoned and that's where the court cases begin. The president at the time was a New Yorker, Martin Van Buren, and he was more inclined to essentially just give the enslaved Africans back to the plantation owners, give them back the boat, send them on their way, and kind of move on. But the abolitionist movement, who were really gaining prominence in the North at this time in New York and and other uh, northern states, really saw this whole situation as an opportunity, potentially in their wildest dreams, free these enslaved people, but really strike a blow against the entire institution of slavery in this country. New York actually plays a very important part in the Amistad Rebellion. First of all, Louis Tappan, who is probably the wealthiest abolitionist at the time, Louis Tappan took an immediate interest in this case and devoted considerable resources to it. Uh, Joshua Levitt, the publisher of The Emancipator, was based in New York. This was one of the main ways that the story became known. Uh, They rushed to New London to meet the Amistad Africans. And that was because a rank and file abolitionist named Dwight James, a dockside grocer, had gone on board the Amistad as soon as it came uh, to New London and then went and wrote letters to Tappan and all the rest saying, look, we've got an unbelievable opportunity here for the abolitionist movement. But here's another example of the way New York mattered. The Amistad Africans spoke many different languages, but the abolitionists could not find people to communicate with them. They brought in people from three or four different ethnic groups, African ethnic groups, to see if they could speak any of the languages that the Amistad Africans could, and none of them could. So this Yale professor, Josiah Gibbs, he talked with the little girls, and they taught him to count to 10 in Mende. So what did uh, Gibbs do? He went to the waterfront of New York and walked up and down the docks counting from one to 10 in Mende to see if anybody could understand him. But these two sailors came up to him and said, uh, we're Mende. Uh, One of these was James Covey, who will end up being the main translator, who then goes immediately to the Connecticut jail. And that then allows the Amistad Africans to tell their story to the world. Before that, they were uh, they were like an abstraction to everybody. Nobody really knew who they were. The motley crew on the docks of New York is what made possible the breakthrough in communication. The first thing your listeners would need to know is that a jail in the first half of the 19th century is not like a jail today. 
or much more open institutions. The jailer would always try to make money on the people who were in the jail. So imagine the jailer's excitement when there's this huge interest in the Amistad Africans and people start lining up to come and walk through the jail and see them, you know, talk to them through the interpreter after James Covey is found. Mm -hmm. And so he actually, the jailer starts charging admission. The abolitionists don't like this, but the Amistad Africans seem to have liked it because people brought them food, people gave them money. And then the other thing that happens, artists came in. These artists would, you know, one guy created a panorama of the revolt. Uh, someone else created a history of the Amasai Africans and drew portraits of quite a few of them. And so this actually helped to fuel the abolitionist cause by making them real to people. And see, they, they, they couldn't really be mistreated very much because the abolitionists were in there. So everything is closely watched. At times, they would be allowed to go out on New Haven Common, where they would perform these amazing feats of acrobatics. And what I learned was that military agility and acrobatics was part of the training of a Mende warrior. So there was kind of a popular entertainment aspect to all this. But what's really crucial is that many people who filed through the jail would go home and write a letter to their local newspaper. And they built through this, through this contact, a really strong following of supporters in New Haven, some of whom were abolitionists, but some of whom were not. I mean, I saw letters of contribution to the Amistad Committee, uh, and people would say things like, I am no crazy abolitionist, but I do support the right of these people to be free. There was a kind of social movement aspect of this. They had really, you know, most of the, most white people in Connecticut in this period didn't know any people from Africa. So what, what happened was I think they became real. They became human beings, just like you. So this was a, as we noted, a very complex court case. It took over two years for it to finally there to be a verdict. It started out in the courts of Connecticut. The courts there decided that it, this was a federal problem. And so they kicked it upstairs to the Supreme Court. And as we noted, the uh, abolitionists had hired a team of attorneys to really work this case at the local level, and, and they were successful in petitioning it to, to make it to the Supreme Court. But they needed a kind of star to really bring this case forward. They chose a former president by the name of John Quincy Adams, who at the time uh, was actually serving in the House of Representatives. But he was also, uh, he was elderly at the time. He was 73 years old, but he was exactly what they needed. He was a big name, a, a person who had impeccable legal credentials. And what he does is study the case. He studies all of the the legal documents, and he argues for eight and a half hours in front of the Supreme Court. And in the end, it sways the court in the favor of the enslaved Africans. Although the two-year-long court saga takes place in Connecticut, we need to remember that the story actually begins in New York. So we spoke with Dr. Georgette Greer-Key to learn more about the impact that the Amistad story continues to have on New York State history. Hello, everyone. My name is Georgette Greer-Key, and I'm the executive director at Eastville Community Historical Society, which is my home base. 
among other positions that I hold throughout the state. Eastville is situated in Sag Harbor and we're sandwiched in two townships, the town of East Hampton and the town of Southampton. And so what we have been doing um, since 1981, we were incorporated by the Board of Regents to tell the history of Sag Harbor in the East End. And our tagline is linking three cultures because we have a population of indigenous that settled from Montauk when they were pushed out. Um, we also have African-Americans that were both free and enslaved. Then we have the immigrant population of European descent that settled there. So as you can imagine, our history is very vast from mm -hmm. colonial times to the present. And we're making sure that we continue to tell that history through preservation, through the arts, and looking at humanities and how they matter for, matter for our life today. This is a global story, the Amistad, and even a national story, because this case, it went all the way to the Supreme Court. And you have John Quincy Adams defending 35 enslaved Africans. So yes, it is a story about enslavement, but it's a story also about resilience. It's also a story about their culture. I think about um, how they were trying to navigate back to freedom by using the stars. You know, that's another extraordinary story. So even this is the precursor to the Underground Railroad and you start to think about Harriet Tubman, how she used the stars. But I think it's more important because when we talk about slavery, the North has get, gotten a pass because it has been written out of history. And so this is a nod to Northern slavery that we often don't talk about, but it's happened right here in Montauk. They came aground here. They were looking for provision here. And for my organization, along with the Montauk Historical Society and other local groups, we have sought to preserve and reclaim this history in its specific place where it happened. This new marker, from the Palmieri Foundation. It's actually closer to the spot where it happened on the beach, which is really not accessible for a lot of people. You know, it's it's back in the off-beaten path. And so that was a day to remember. And so we can talk about that day too. We wanted to commemorate it at the right time. If you look at Amistad, we did it on the actual day, which is August 28th. So we said, this is this has got to be a big deal. We need to make a big deal out of this. So we went to planning. And when we went to planning, we came up with a program. I got to tell you, most people who attended that day thought it was very, uh, very spiritual um, because we had various things. Like we had Dr. Maria De Longoria do a libation celebration to pour out and to pay homage to the ancestors, right? So that was very powerful. Then we had a young group um, from the, a group called the Vinettes, two young men come and do a dance at the site on the beach. And then we had something that's uh, historically called a ring shout. It's not really a dance, it's more of a cultural, a spiritual type of thing. So we had that. We had African drumming. We also had an African instrument called the Kora. So it was a, a very powerful day where there was this celebration, but also remembrance and a means to, to move forward with telling this truth and this history and what it means for our region. And then at the end, we go back up to the spot because we were down on the beach. And I got to tell you this, walking from the actual spot down to the beach, you could swear that you were like, in the jungles of Africa, like mm -hmm. taking 
that same journey, walking through the woods to go to this water, this beach. Because if you understand where the topography of this area in the terrain, it's really very difficult to navigate. And we had everything set up there, but walking through those woods, you couldn't see anything, but you could hear the African drumming. And we did that intentionally because we wow. wanted people to understand that there's a change happening right now. And so that's why I say it started off very powerful in the beginning. Because how do you top that? I got to tell you, if you <laughs> see the video, it'll say, oh my goodness. And so this year we're like, we got to do something again because we've been trying to make this an annual thing. And so we call it Amistad Weekend. This year, we will be having Discovery Amistad back. And we're looking at dates um, of August 22nd to August 29th. And so we will have tours. Um, we will be on the beach where they actually ran aground. So we're planning a whole weekend again to really talk about this history. I think it's really cool the way that the community has used African culture to celebrate the unveiling of the marker, but then to talk about the cultural influence both in 1839 and today. When the Africans who were on the ship were held captive, they were using their experience as African warriors, first of all, to be able to revolt successfully. And then they continue to use their skills and their culture while they are trying to earn money to get themselves back to Africa. And to be able to push that forward into today in the way that the community was using African drumming and and dance and commemoration. Um, it, it's really inspiring to to have this type of marker unveiling as the result of you know getting a grant from the Pomeroy Foundation to be able to reclaim this history, bring it back to New York, right near the area where it happened, um, and and to evoke feelings about the influence of that culture on this story. You're right, and it does tie directly to the work of Marcus Redeker, who, in his book, The Amistad Rebellion, An Atlantic Odyssey of Slavery and Rebellion, really tries to answer the question of, you know, why was this revolt successful? So it's really an amazing story, and it's a story about the human desire for freedom, I think, but it's also a story that is uniquely an African story. Uh, and that's why, as you said, the the bringing together today uh, at the unveiling of the marker in 2023, uh, African um, uh, culture and, and music and, and all of that to the forefront really positions this as uh, an African story by way of New York. One of the things that has always struck me about the Amistad Rebellion is that these 53 people stage an uprising on a small schooner on the north coast of Cuba, seize their freedom, guide the ship through Northern Long Island. And inside of two years, the most powerful people in the world are debating what they've done. Presidents, monarchs, the British Parliament, abolitionist groups all around the Atlantic, Supreme Court justices. These are the most powerful people in the world talking about this event. And to me, this is one of the really great things about history from below. You never know when something might arise 
that will create uh, a kind of an extraordinary set of consequences. And, uh, and I do think the Amistad Rebellion is, is important because it was a victory. And even though they were not enslaved in the United States, uh, that's one of the reasons the Supreme Court was able to rule the way it, it did. It ruled on the very narrow grounds of the violation of a treaty uh, between Britain and Spain, so as not to set any precedent for anybody you know, gaining freedom in the United States. But you couldn't separate out the fact that you had these self-emancipated people who had taken on, you know, not just one, but two of the main you know, governments in the world, Spain and the United States, and, and had won their freedom through this long struggle. It, it's just an extraordinary story. And, and I can tell you, the abolitionists were shocked. They did not expect to win. When the Supreme Court ruled in their favor, they were bowled over. But such was the nature of the campaign that uh, they and these African rebels waged. It was a winning campaign. Thanks for listening to A New York Minute in History. This podcast is a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio and the New York State Museum with support from the William G. Pomeroy Foundation. Our producer is Elizabeth Urbancic. A big thanks to Dr. Marcus Redeker and Dr. Georgette Greer-Key for taking part. If you enjoyed this month's episode, make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and share on social media. To learn more about our guests and the show, check us out at wamcpodcast.org. We're also on X and Instagram as at NY History Minute. I'm Devin Lander. And I'm Lauren Roberts. Until next time, Excelsior! Excelsior. Ooh, we put a little extra mustard on that one. I like it. Excelsior. <laughs>